I'm here with Sean Harris, a Kita for Home Plus student from the United States. I asked Sean how he enjoyed learning with Kita over the course of the year. Kita was really an amazing experience because I got to learn three new things every week. One Kumash, one Mishnah, and one Gamara. After each week, I got to discuss those things, and I learned a lot. I also asked Sean what were his favorite parts of the Kita for Home Plus program. My favorite part of the Kita lessons um, are getting to go onto Zoom and actually discuss them because then it's a two-way conversation and not just learning, it's interactive as well. I also spoke to Sean's parents and asked them how they felt about Kita. Yeah, we love the program. It was phenomenal. It, it exceeded our expectations for sure. Sean learned so much. It was providing him a basis to go to high school for Yeshiva education. We just appreciated all the learning that we did every week. Do you know a family looking for a Jewish education solution for their children? Kita offers serious Jewish learning at an affordable price. To find out more, visit kita.org. That's K-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G. everybody, welcome to RZ Weekly, our podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. We're here with Rabbanit Mali Brovsky. Mali is a senior faculty member and director of the Shanabet program at MMY, where she's also the in-house mental health professional. She's also a clinical social worker with a private practice in Alon Shvut. We're here with Ravjani Solomon. Hello, Ravjani. Hello, hello. Hello, Ravjani is a teacher at Mindresh at Lindenbaum and Matan. He's an editor at Mosaica Press, an independent Jewish educational consultant. He also works as a rabbi for people without a rabbi, providing online spiritual coaching, halachic consultation, and one-to-one learning services to men and women around the world. If, if, if you haven't reached out to him, you're looking for a rabbi, you don't have a rabbi, reach out. Beyond this, Rav Johnny writes a daily thought on Daf Yomi and serves as a posek to his local shul in Evan Shmuel. I am Ruben Spolter. I'm the director and founder of Kita an online Jewish learning platform for middle school children. Want to learn more? Kita.org. You probably also just heard my ad. And I'm also the coordinator of the Rimonim Teacher Training Program at the Herzog College of Education in Israel. I also teach Mishnah Yomit over YouTube and WhatsApp. You can join the WhatsApp group. You can find us at Mishnah.co, and I encourage you to join us. I live in Yad Binyamin. Okay, Wait, is, that, is that better? You think it's better that I read it, or you know, it's more fun when I make mistakes all the time? What do you, what do you guys think? I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I it. Molly is actually teaching at MMY this now. What can I tell you? <laughs> okay, we're in the summer months, and we decided to do something a little bit different rather than taking an issue. What we were going to do is, you know, a lot of podcasts like to do summer books we're reading, but this is RC Weekly. We're not just going to do books we're reading. We want each of us wants to share a book, or maybe even more than one book, but we're going to focus on one book. And then we thought we'd have a little discussion about uh, the ideas behind the book. So each of us is going to share a book, and then we're going to sort of have a little interchange and see how that goes. We're going to start with Rav Johnny. Rav Johnny, what are you reading? Okay, so I actually have a, quite a large list of books I'm trying to get through. <laughs> some for review. I just imagine your bedside just, table. Uh, Isn't like a movie like that, where like the bedside table is like stacked with The books? truth is, most of my reading I do on Shabbos. Uh, by the time I get to bed, late, late in the morning or early at night, whatever you want to call it, that... <laughs> 
Uh, often I don't have much energy to do much reading. But nevertheless, um, a book that I saw, um, which was published a couple of years ago, which only it took, it took until a couple of months ago for me to get my own copy, is a book titled Witness Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom by Ariel Berger. Uh, I'd read about this book. It was originally published in t 2018 by First Mariner Books. And for whatever reason, I'd wanted to get it. I didn't get it. Uh, and some months ago, I said, you know, Higiazman to get this book, which looks very, very special. And uh, boy, is it special. Let me just tell you a little bit about the framework of the book. Obviously, we know who is uh, Elie Wiesel. But Ariel Berger was... Uh, both, he, he was somebody who was deeply influenced by Elie Wiesel. He met him when he was 15 years old. He himself had grown up in, uh, with a mother who had pushed him towards a, a very committed orthodoxy, a father a little bit more modern. His parents were divorced. Um, and he was somebody who was trying to find the balance between his deep love of Judaism and modernity with a whole bunch of moral questions. And, and he met Elie Wiesel when he was 15, and over a period of time, he got to know him. And then later on, when doing a doctorate at Boston University, uh, he served for five years as Elie Wiesel's teaching assistant. And through that journey, sitting in Elie Wiesel's classroom, planning courses with him, meeting with him, understanding how Elie Wiesel's students interacted with Professor Wiesel, he got this unique view into Elie Wiesel as a teacher, as a scholar, as a thinker. And what this book is, is a tribute to Elie Wiesel as a teacher from the window or, or from the, a seat in his lecture hall from his classroom, as well as from the private conversations Elie Wiesel had with his students and that he had with Ariel Berger. And uh, I think it's a magnificent book. It's written beautifully, it actually won the National Jewish Book Award a couple of years ago. Um, and it gives us a perspective of who was Elie Wiesel? We often think of him as a great thinker, a speaker, a leader, and a writer. But most importantly, he himself emphasizes he was a teacher. And uh, I've always uh, prided myself that no matter what other people think of me, in being a teacher is, is really a really important accolade to me, really important title, really who I am. And uh, when you get a sense of what he was in the classes that he gave, and how he connected with his students and connected his students to the lessons he wished to teach. Um, really, it, it, it's a tremendous insight into who this great leader was, who this great thinker was. But more significantly, it pushes me as a teacher to ask myself, what can be done in a classroom? You know, we often think we're there to teach ideas or teach students. But Elie Wiesel did something more. He pushed his students to grasp, consider, grapple, and wrestle with the biggest questions. And even though a lot of his students were not Jewish, he'd interweave Hasidic tales and biblical narratives with philosophical writings. He pushed them to think differently, and yet somehow was connecting with every single one of them. And so what this book does is it gives us a series of insights, stories, uh, anecdotes, um, it describes conversations, teachings of Elie Wiesel, and uh, I, I, it really warms my heart, but also pushes me to think carefully who I am as a teacher and what we need to be doing in classrooms, in platforms, 
to make sure that our students, our learners, don't just learn knowledge, but grow as human beings. Just to quote one uh, quick line from the book, uh, when speaking to his uh, prospective students at the beginning of a semester, Elie Wiesel said, I'm looking for the essence of each of you to emerge here so that together we can learn what we do not allow ourselves to learn elsewhere. And he saw the classroom as a collaboration, not that he was talking at them, but they were talking together to discover deep things and to hopefully uh, enrich and strengthen their conscience to be able to uh, confront some of the great evils in the world and make the world a better place. Mali. Do you want me to respond to Johnny? Yes, I do. I want you to respond to Johnny. You have questions? Okay. I, I, we, yeah, I this did, is new I for us. So okay, I'm yeah, go yeah. For it. okay, so first of all, it reminds me of the Rav, where the Rav, um, when he would, he, they would ask him how he wanted to be introduced, he, he would always say, tell them I'm a teacher. So like that idea mm -hmm. of like the fundament, your, your fundamental um, sense of self as a teacher, I think is very profound. Um, it also reminds me, Johnny, of a, of a book by Parker Palmer, who wrote a book called The Courage to Teach. And it's about the issues that you're raising about how you speak to, how you kind of not, you're not teaching information, you're teaching students. So I'm just wondering, Johnny, um, can you, I, I don't know if you can just pull it out on the spot like this, but can you give a story or an anecdote from the book? What I'm interested is, in is um, that reflects something about Ellie Wiesel's personality because that's what I find interesting, right? I, I remember, I also like, I related to Ellie Wiesel as, as a writer and as a thinker, and you know, it's called witness, right? I, I you know, the ultimate um, witness to the Holocaust. And I found this wonderful art, uh, article about his trip to Disney World. I happen to be a Disney World fan for many reasons, maybe less so these days than I was in the past. That's a different story. Um, but no, we're um, gonna have to come back to that. Okay, yeah. Um, anyway, but um, he talks about why he found Disney World. He found it enchanting and wonderful because he loved this, the like. That, that, that Disney was trying to like give people a place where they could go back to the innocence and the magic of childhood. Um, and I just thought that was so insightful and, and, and so interesting. So I'm wondering if, uh, like an insight into Elie Wiesel's personality and the things that he found valuable, but would not have necessarily otherwise known. So can you maybe share something that, that reflects, that, that, that kind of jumped out for you that reflects Elie Wiesel as a person? Is, is there anything like that? Yeah. Well, I think it's there on every single page of the book. You know, I'm, I'm a strong believer that a teacher has to be authentic in the classroom. My feeling was that when I taught in the UK, and there there's a certain formality to the classroom, I was me, but there's a bit of me that I kind of left outside of the classroom because of this kind of almost play of being Mr. Solomon or Rabbi Solomon, whatever, and that distance, not just obviously physical distance, but a certain uh, distance in terms of the teacher versus the student. And even though I worked in some fantastic places and had some really wonderful connections with some tremendous students, nevertheless, the kind of the avira of what is the classroom, I felt meant that I had to leave a little bit of me, myself uh, aside. When I made Aliyah, actually, I think that the education system here allows for a teacher to bring a little bit more of themselves into the classroom. And I think somebody like uh, Elie Wiesel was entirely himself in his classroom. That means that everything he taught was him to the essence. So it's not as if I can tell you an anecdote that shows him. Every time he spoke to a student, every time that he asked this, his student afterwards, for example, he had a student who'd uh, come from Warsaw, Yugoslavia, and 
he, he wanted to meet with that student. He says, you already understand some of the things that I'm talking about. And he connected to who that student was and where they'd come from and almost empowered them from the journey they'd taken to be able to take greater leaps with that life experience in terms of the conversation that was taking place in the classroom. So his, he was always sensitive to his students, but he was always himself. And I think, uh, like I mentioned before, when you think about the fact that he's teaching a, a lot of students, many of whom are not Jewish, and yet many of his classes are starting with a Hasidic tale, you know, a story of Nachman of Breslev, you're thinking, what, why? Because for him, those stories aren't just... Uh, it, you know, cute distractions in a classroom. Often a teacher will tell a story for a light kind of uh, interlude. Instead, what these are are windows into a whole mindset of what is important. And he brought him and that past and his past from Siget into the classroom and uh, helped every student understand who he was. And in his preparedness to be vulnerable, notwithstanding the fact he was so senior and so so uh, well regarded, those students felt prepared themselves to be vulnerable. And that's exactly what the ideal classroom should be about. Yeah, I just want to say in response to that, John, I think it's totally right. I think that the idea of being, bringing yourself into the classroom is really powerful and important. Um, but I think you also said something really beautiful, which is he's bringing himself in, but not so that the class is about himself, right? So it's not, it's not about right. putting the spotlight on himself. He's bringing himself in as service to the students, right? When he's bringing himself into the classroom, it's so that the students will be able to, to, to also bring their authentic selves into the classroom, which I think is really powerful. Um, and also what you said about vulnerability, I think really struck me. And again, I'll go back to the, the, this Parker Palmer, the courage to teach, this idea that if we model vulnerability, our students will model vulnerability. And if we model imperfection, our students will know that it's okay to be imperfect. And, and um, and then you'll have a classroom that really is an exchange of ideas and, and selves rather than, as you're saying, either information and, 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 and kind of not touching the soul and the heart of the student, which is probably not going to get very far in terms of education. So. Hmm. Um, interesting. I, like, I'm thinking about this as a teacher. You know, many of our listeners are teachers and they, they teach in, they, I'll say it this way, they're not Elie Wiesel. You know, very often a teacher also is the person who he is. I, I remember this like, I remember this like it was yesterday. Like I remember once I was sitting in, in, in Rosenzweig Shear and, and he made a joke. Okay, and like the way it is is when you're when like when, when you're a Russia Shiva and you make a joke, it's just funnier than it would objectively be. Because you're not expecting it to be a joke. You know, you know what I'm saying? You're just it's like ha <laughs> ha and I look at the guy, I was like, that's not so funny. Like, you know, but everything is funny when, when the Rebbe makes a joke. And and so not to God forbid, I don't want to take away from Elie Wiesel, but Elie Wiesel, when he walks into the classroom, He's Ellie Wiesel. All of the students are there. I'm not, I don't know what it was like when he first started, but that student, the guy who wrote the book, was there because he was Ellie Wiesel. And everyone is there because he's Ellie Wiesel, because they want to sort of soak in the Ellie Wiesel-ness. That be, and that's not a criticism at all, and I want to be clear about that. That being said, like, I, I think that teachers often, they are there to, part, to, to, to give information over. They're there to teach skills. They're there to teach learning. Now, I don't know what it's like in England. I wasn't, like, I wasn't there. And I definitely agree that the ideal in teaching is a give and take, where you're drawing students out and you're making them comfortable to participate in the classroom where their participation is important and they feel like they're adding something. And I think that's something that you were, that you were sort of alluding to, that it has to be a, a place of comfort and a place where students feel like they have what to contribute. 
And that's the way I really see uh, you know, a teacher should strive for. Because I, and I think it's a balance. If, if, you want to, you know, if you want to give information, you're the teacher. You have what to give. And, and if you're not Elie Wiesel, and that's not always a given. So I think that there is, there is a, there, there's a level of formality. There's a level that, of that needs to be, to be there. But at the same time, and I, like I used to give a partial share. Hopefully we're going to go back to that. And like people listen say, oh, I didn't like listening because you, you, you always engage in conversation with the people at the shear. I said, you know, that's my ideal shiur, when people, where it's a conversation about the parsha, and then I'm sharing my ideas. I said, and you're just listening in from the side. If that's not for you, then that's fine. I'm not giving a, a parsha recording. I'm giving a parsha class. And so that's really what I take from that discussion. And we, I think all of us try to aspire to do that as much as possible. Molly. Well, Johnny, I think, wanted to say something first. Yeah whatever you like I mean, the, the, you use the word comfort and something just struck me uh, both about his classroom and I think about some of the most important conversations we can have which is I don't think Wiesel made his students comfortable alone I think he creates a comfortable atmosphere so that he could take them to points of discomfort meaning it's, a, it's an important thing it, it, I don't want you to think that all is well in the world I want you to feel the jarring of what is versus what ought to be. But in order for you to be honest about that, I need you to be sufficiently comfortable to be true to what you see. And I think both him as a teacher and some of the greatest of teachers, they create an atmosphere of comfort to enable students to feel that discomfort, but from a place of authenticity. And it's similar even in the world of of uh, when coaching somebody, I want people to feel comfortable, but then to also be real about recognizing the gaps in the journey they're taking. So you need one first in order to get to the next. Molly, it's interesting you mentioned Ralph Soloveitchik. So when I think of, I never was in his year, but from when I think of what I heard about his year, he did not make people feel comfortable. It was clear that his students were literally quaking in their boots and afraid to be called on. He was the, the lecturer, he was there to give over. Okay. I would say it was the opposite. It's a different model, very, very different okay, so than, than what we're describing. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say about that. First of all, that I, I remember, I don't remember if it was the Shloshim for the Rav. I just remember that Dr. Soloveitchik, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik was speaking about that and said that the Rav changed after his wife died um, and that he that his students were no longer, quit. he got softer, which I found interesting. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because his son didn't. <laughs> that's true. I, I, I audited that class so that I could hide behind, oh, whatever, I won't say who I hid behind, so that I knew it was actually, I'll tell you who it was, it was David, it was my husband. I, we're not, I, we were in Rebels together and I hid behind him because I knew that if Dr. Soloveitchik would look in our direction, David would know the answer and I would be off the hook. That's so funny. yeah, I agree <laughs> Anyway, but what I, what I wanted to say was, okay, the rub was the rub. And by the way, he was an orator who like could hold people spelled out for four hours. Oh do you know God. what I'm saying? Like yes. anybody, you know. Um, but I, I had this experience because, and I agree with you, I think that education is about imparting information. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want people to have a stroke and think that I'm, I, think it's, I think it's all about feeling good. But I, I want to say that I, I did this experiment on myself and I found it really interesting. Um, I was in a, in a shear that had rotating teachers and I wasn't enjoying the shear because I didn't find, it was all about imparting the information and I didn't think the teachers were particularly skilled in making the students feel comfortable and, and they didn't, so then I thought back to myself, who, who was the best teacher I ever had? And I, I said from, from elementary school through my two master's degrees, right? So that's a lot of years of education. Elementary school, high school, college, and two graduate programs. 
You know who I decided is my favorite teacher? And I think the best teacher, like if I had to give the best teacher award, and I had some really, really good teachers. My best teacher was somebody named Manaj Partisani at Wurzweiler. You know what he taught me? Statistics. You know what mm. I'm not good at? Statistics. You know, I can't do math to save my life. But Dr. Partisani made every single person, you walked into that classroom and he was just the nicest, kindest, warmest person. He walked us through the material. He taught us. He taught us how to do the stuff. But he, he did it in a way, he somehow, he, ma he made us all feel so good. We, we loved going to class. And he didn't sacrifice on, on, on content. But the ability to make us feel uh, comfortable, I like Johnny's word, and I will, I will say him over like, and I've had amazing Rabbeim teachers, you know, mentors. I'm going to give the best teacher award to Dr. Pete because of the way he made us feel in the classroom. All right. Wow. Let's uh, stop here. We're going to switch, go to our next book with Molly. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Shalom. This is Rav Johnny Solomon. And I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ila, a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one -one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. Molly, what are you reading? Okay, so I just want to say, like, shout out to Tradition because um, they just had this also where they did, like, you know, peop uh, people on the editorial board suggesting books so that you can go take a look at what I suggested there. I'll just tell you the name of it. It's called Strangers and Neighbors, What I Have Learned About Christianity by Living Among Orthodox Jews, and it's a great book. But for here, I chose a different book. Um, okay, the book I chose for here is a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less um, by somebody named Greg M.C. K-E-O-W-N, McEwen, McEwen, I don't know how you pronounce his name. I love this book, right? This is a book that like, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I have an emotional attachment to this book. What's it about? Um, so John and I were discussing before this that we're both reading a book called Range, which is a book about, um, why am I reading that book? Because I identify with the premise of the book. The premise of the book Range is that there, there are certain people or, uh, that, that don't focus on one thing. They can focus on many things and find that, interesting and fascinating and I really identify with that as you see from my bio that Ruby read so nicely um I do thank you, I'm an thank you very much <laughs> and a social worker right I'm, I'm I'm interested in doing a lot of things not just one um and because of that I think and but I we all just have like ADHD I, mean, I don't think I have it I mean I might they, they say that women present with ADHD differently than men so I might but I don't I don't why do you go to women versus men? I just thought all of us do like. Well, no, I'll tell you things. why. Because I, I don't have classic <laughs> ADHD symptoms. Like ah. I'm not, you know what I mean? But yeah. okay. Anyway, the point is, I love this book, Essentialism, because the point of the book is to teach you how to do less more effectively, right? So I think because I'm pulled naturally to doing a lot of things, right? The ability that that message that like 
you can winnow down and say no to more things and therefore be more effective by choosing what things you're gonna you're going to actually do and do them better I found super empowering and like it's just a great message and it's a great book like it's well written it's interesting it's practical um, and I really like I highly recommend it to anybody who who struggles with this and I feel like we all do right don't, don't we all struggle with that sense of like how do you say no and you know how do you not spend your how do you not diffuse your energy all over I think since I mentioned women before I think particularly women have this women both multitask I think I, I think that seems to be the prevailing sense that women multitask more than men um, and that women have a harder time saying no than men um, I think so 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 I, I think that like it's such a power it's an like again it's a it's a funny word to use but it's an empowering book because it like taught me not just how to say no but the value of saying no and that if you say no you're actually going to be more productive and i also think that the reason this book spoke to me or like it came at the right time was i don't know if you've experienced this but 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 the my sense is that corona one of the things i learned from corona is that i'm happier with less in my life right and i think a lot of us feel that way i'm happier with fewer social engagements to go to. I'm happier with, uh, you know, w w whatever it is, like fewer outside things. We all hit, like we all came into ourselves and I, I don't want to lose some of that, you know, we're, we're all saying like, why should we lose the like more toned down smachot in terms of like expenditure and extravagance, right? And so like there too, it's like, how do we, can I preserve that ability to, to be discerning and careful and, and in that way, actually be more effective in my life. And that's why I chose this book. Wow. Yeah, so it's, I, I'll give you my, I'm, I, so much going on in my mind. I, I don't know if it's women. I, mean, I don't know. I, I think, first of all, our refusal to say no comes out of a, I, I would say, um, a deep-seated need to be wanted and needed. Meaning if somebody wants me, then I'm not going to say no because I have this deep-seated, I want to be wanted. So of course I'm going to say yes. So I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, and I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot to be said about why people say yes to doing yeah. many, many things. Yeah. It's actually why, why is it I have four jobs and I'm also giving a shear and I'm also working yeah. on this and that? I, I don't know. I, I happen to think that if I had only two jobs, then I'd be working on three other things. There's some, there's some psychology there. I'm not going there. But what I did want to comment on is something I actually learned from a coworker very, very recently as I, as I get older. And um, basically, like, all kinds of jobs have different parts to them. They have different aspects to them. And, and this person, I mean, we all have parts of a job we like and parts of a job we don't like. But she basically said to me, she's like, listen, I'm at the point in my life where I don't want to be doing X. I want to be doing Y and Z. And so I'm going to be focusing my energy and my efforts on doing Y and Z because that's what I'm good at and that's what I enjoy. And the other things are a distraction. And I realized, and without being general, that in another job that I have, I do this all the time, that for a long, long time, I've been spending a lot of energy and effort doing X, which I hate, when I really am very good at doing Y and Z. And finally, so like, I called up the person that I work with and I said, I can't do X anymore and we have to find a way around it. It was like empowering to me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That I'm just not, I'm just not gonna do it anymore. And, and there's a solution, but they, like, my willingness to do X just made life easier for everybody. So for years, I've been doing this function because why not? You know, because like, oh, that's the easiest, the, the path of least resistance. And so I think that our desire to help others sometimes is, is detrimental to ourselves. 
So he and actually talks about us, those. It, is, does that make sense? Totally. And he gives examples of that. He, he talks about essentially people who are essentialists. And one of the examples he gives is their ability to do what you, what you did, which is to say like, no, I will not do that. If you want me to be more effective, use me only to do, you know, as you're saying, Y and Z, right? He brings an example. I think Steve, Steve Jobs asked like graphic designers and he said to them, I want you to give me three mock-ups. And this one guy said, I will not give you three mock-ups. I will give you one excellent mock-up and you will pay me for my time. And you don't have to use it afterwards, right? You don't, you know, like you'll, if, if you end up using me, then, you know, we'll, we'll have a contract. But like, I'm not going to waste my time making three things. I'm going to use my time to make one excellent thing. And then you, get, you can decide whether you want to go with, you, you want to use it or not. And I think, I think in the, you know, I don't know if the book's true. In the book, the, of course, he got the In job, the book, right? the guy chose that and that's what, you know, that's what he used. But like that ability, it's, it's exactly, that's a great, your story is exactly what you just said was like the path of the essentialist. But I, I don't know if it's always because people want, it, that also might be a male-female thing where men want to feel needed and women want to feel whatever it is, um, valued in a different way. But, but, um, but I think women have a harder time, they, they're more people pleasers. And like their instinct is to be like, yes, because I want to make you happy. Not necessarily because I want to feel um, accomplished, but because I don't want to let you down. I don't know, I don't know if it's a difference, but it's, there, there are many reasons why people have a hard time saying no. Johnny. Yeah, I mean, this is something which uh, very much speaks to me. I mean, um, I mean I Johnny, I just read your bio, and you have like 87 things that your bio yeah, is Yeah, well, but the truth is, some of it's not out of choice. <laughs> no, no, 100%. I've said, and 100%. Truth is, I've said uh, to many people, I'd love to do a few things, you know, for more. And sometimes uh, through various efforts, that's happened. And sometimes through various efforts, that's not happened. And so I've tried to learn the art of range, even though I have a want for essentialism. And uh, I can say on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in terms of productivity, I'm more productive when I do less. Kind of sounds strange, but it's when I say slow down, just change the pace, and work, work on two things on the list, not on five, then uh, those two things generally come out pretty well. Obviously, though, sometimes when the three other people call you, <laughs> then you kind of have to figure things out. And, and, and so figuring out how to work on less in a world that makes demands on you um, is tricky and that's why the art of of negotiating how to say no because it's not always so simple right. simply to say no but uh, that's an important thing hey Johnny and, talk uh, about the, talk about the opposite because Molly reflected we were talking before about the essentialism versus the broad the breadth and the range okay. and you but I realize I don't pull. think it's a contradiction. I think. So, but I want, I want to like. If yeah, no, I want to hear Johnny's, but I just want to say, I, I, like at the beginning, I was like, I don't know how these two things go together, and now I realize it's Dafka. If you are a range person, essentialism will help you focus that well. But I do want to hear Johnny's perspective. Right. See, so, well, the point about uh, this book, Range, it is exactly complementary to this notion. What the author is trying to challenge is this uh, belief, kind of strongly pushed although I think less strong than people necessarily claim it to be, by Malcolm Gladwell and outliers that if a person invests, you know, 10,000 hours or something on a particular discipline, they become great. And what Epstein says in range is most people who are great at what they do generally started doing it later on in life rather than earlier on in life and did it from amongst many other hobbies and disciplines and they found their strength. Meaning, he's not saying that you, d you won't find a thing that you essentially want to spend a lot of time doing. 
He says ultimately a person generally does, but more often than not, it comes from beginning by uh, you know taking a broader range of things that speak to you and exploring, experimenting with them, and then finding your gift or finding your mission or finding what most speaks to you rather than to individualize and say from a very young age this kid's going to be a golfer or this child's going to be a, a tennis player or this person's going to be you know Rosh Hashiva he says to do that from a very young age rarely succeeds of course we all think about the few people who did make it but we ignore the many people that don't and he thinks teach your kid if you're if your parent a range of things and they will then gain confidence about their abilities they'll figure out who they are and through doing so they'll help them have a better sense of self-discovery and then identify what essentially they should be spending more of their time on in the future so Mali that does seem like they sort of contradict because Johnny's like cast a wide net figure out what you want and you're like no you got to whittle down so how in your mind do no, they initially not, well, sorry, how, I'm saying, Mali, how in your mind do you say do you think that they they complement one another Okay, so, so first of all, yeah, I think, let me, let me read you the quote from his, from his book. Essentialism is not about how to get more things done. It's about how to get the right things done. It doesn't mean just doing less for the sake of less either. It's about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at the highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential, right? So, so I think John is right. The point of range is that for some people, like, they're going to be discerning about what they choose to do, but that might be across a, let's say, a spectrum of, um, of, of, of disciplines, right? But, but especially if you're a range person, then the art of essentialism is really important because, and I think that's really the message for me, right? I am a range person. I'm, interest, I'm multidisciplinary. I'm interested in many disciplines. I'm interested in emotional intelligence as well as cognitive intelligence. I'm not in one box particularly. Um, so if that's true about me, it's even more important that I learn how to be selective and discerning about how to get the maximum out of each box, let's say, that I'm visiting. That's another example he has in his book, the last chapter I read, where he talked about being more successful because you're not coming from within the discipline. Um, because you're dafka like thinking, you know, I think out of the box is a very like, kind of hackneyed phrase, but like he talks about like, you know, people who, who, because they're pulling from not the discipline that they're supposed to be in, they're able to bring much more knowledge and skill and, and creativity to what they're doing. So one of his examples is like some woman who's like a chemist and she figured out how to like, I forgot what it is, do something, I don't know, chemist, chemistry-ish. But she says like, I'm not the best chemist, but I know who, to, who the best chemists are. So I know who to ask, right? The best, I know who the best chemist is, the best physicist, the best whatever. I know who to ask. I don't really understand what the heck they're doing. But I know how to, how to pull their knowledge into what I'm doing, and I bring them all together, right? So that's another example of, like, she doesn't, she doesn't get distracted by the 16 different experts that she's, their whole world, but she's, she's very, very targeted about who she speaks to, and, and then she brings it in from multiple disciplines. Okay, great. Um, first of all, so now we're going to go to my book, but before we do, I want to share, we're trying to do this, our word of the week. So our Hebrew word of the week is... Hasket. Do you know what a hasket is? Johnny, do you know what it is? Skate. Hasket. It's a talent. Hasket is a podcast. That's the Hebrew word ah. for podcast. So that's going to be connected to my Hamalatza. But, you know, there are, now podcasts are becoming big in Israel. There are a lot of really, really excellent podcasts. Not a lot. A few excellent podcasts coming out. I'm going to recommend one. But now you know the Hebrew word 
Hasketim. Does anybody actually use that yeah, word? Yeah, they do I... in Kan Hasketim. It's called Kan Hasketim, podcastim. So they use both. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, Hasketim, I didn't say podcastim, but... We'll so now you know. Okay, I'm going to share my book. I'm going to turn to my book. Uh, Johnny, you're on the word of the week next time. Okay, I'm just going to... I'll remind you, but... Uh, Simcha. I think, I think it's a nice little thing. Okay. Anyway, um, I, I read a lot of books. I'm going to share something that actually I read a, a couple of months ago. Um, I, I read it because I was going to give it to my daughter, who's 11, and uh, we always read the books before we give them, especially if I don't know what it is. I don't always. My wife usually does. This book is called The Extremely Inconvenient Adventures of Bronte Metalstone, written by a woman named Jacqueline Moriarty. So, uh, first of all, it was excellent. It's a story about this girl, Bronte Metalstone. It's a fantasy book. Uh, you know, she's 10 years old. She gets a telegram that her parents are killed, and she has to go around... They send her on this mission to go visit all of her aunts, all of her siblings, of her parents. It's, it's kind of like Harry Potter, but it's actually wonderful because when you think about Harry Potter, Harry Potter is incredibly dark. It really, really is, is dark. Most of the people, most of the characters are, are, are wicked and evil. Harry grew up in a terrible situation, you know, Uncle, whatever, Uncle Vernon and Aunt, whatever her name is. They're just terrible. He had a terrible life. Whereas Bronte, most of the people she encounters are wonderful and nurturing and warm and supportive. And her adventures are fun and exciting and the whole thing weaves together. It's quite a great book and quite a wonderful book. Uh, and I recommend it for you and for your children if you're into that kind of thing. But what I really wanted to focus on was, as I mentioned, I don't know about you, Molly, I think you've also read all the Harry, Harry Potter books. Sure. Johnny, are you a Harry Potterer? Or are you a... Uh... Uh, my kids are. Yeah, you, I'm, I'm saying it. you haven't read them. I, no. okay, I, I might have gotten into an epic fight with my one of my children because uh, he sort of tried to re he by accident almost revealed <laughs> what was it that nobody knew? Cedric who, who Diggory died. Dumbledore, maybe? Cedric Diggory died. No, no, no. It was a who? And he said it was a he, and I was like, no, I know it's a male. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I I like not a lot, but when it's really I don't read a ton of it, but I think a lot of us like fantasy. We like this world of imagination, and we like like, you know, expanding our minds to the fantastic. And it got me thinking about how, first of all, Judaism is rich with its own sense of fantasy. You know, the Midrash is replete with incredible stories of fantasy. Did you know that Shlomo Amelech built the house of glass? Crazy stories about him with uh, Malkat Shiva. I've mentioned this a few times, but uh, there were these books, these series of books by Lillian Freeman. One was called Stories of King David, and one was called Free Stories Hoff. of King Shlomo. Have I mentioned it? Freehoff. Freehoff, Freehoff. What is it? Lillian? Whatever. Freehoff, correct. It's, you said Freeman. Freehoff, Freehoff, correct. Wonderful book. She basically took Midrashim, I mean, these fantastic, from all over Shas and all over Midrash, and she weaves these great, you know, that Shlomo Hamelech could talk to the animals, and he had a flying carpet, and how he captured Ashmedai. And these things are literally in the Gemara. So there's a, there's a lore, there's stories about the Golem of Prague. We have our own tradition of fantasy in Jewish tradition. And so I think there's a thirst for it on the one hand, but it also like we yearn for fantasy in order to sort of like, you know, imagine of ourselves. Molly, I've heard that you like Star Wars. So <laughs> I do not know of a young boy who hasn't tried to not get up, but hasn't tried to like change the channel or get his coke by using the force. And if only I knew how to use the force, you know, like there's a, there's a way for me to. So I wanted to sort of ask you, hey, Molly, I know you're a fantasy person. Johnny, it seems less so. Um, what does it mean that we're searching out of our own culture, outside of our own culture, for, for sources of fantasy? Does it mean anything? And, and 
what, what is it satisfying in us when we enjoy these books of fantasy that are, we know they're not real, but somehow we, we are, we're excited by the stories anyway. Yeah, so I, I think that the reason that we're attracted to fantasy is because um, there's a, a very, very famous um, book and concept by somebody named John Campbell who talked about the hero's journey or the monomyth of the hero, um, where he basically argues that there, there, there's like one central story that embodies specific archetypes and that that's any story that's fabulously successful will tell that story over and over and over. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. and it's a classic archety- archetypal, archetypical, archetypical, yeah, Ruby. But I just, you made me realize this. You know there's a midrash about Moshe Rabbeinu removing the staff from a stone in yeah. the middle, of, like there's an Excalibur midrash about Moshe Rabbeinu. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a like, Cinderella midrash about David Hamelech, right? These are <laughs> the same. Seriously, he's like right out in the fields, and they all hate him. The, 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 there are archetypes that we that we're that that draw us really powerfully, right? And that's what we're drawn to. And again, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. You you name a successful. St- it's the same story. And, and and you can and you can look up what the what the hero's journey is the, the monomyth of the hero. I actually wrote a, a paper in college explaining how Star Wars followed that path and how it how it reflected the monomyth of the hero for my folklore and literature class, where it's the first time I was um, introduced to this. But I think it's because these are these archetypes are really rooted in us powerfully. We all want to identify with with this idea. It's all about um, leaving your your the, you know your your original home, expanding into a brave world. Um, expanding your horizons, which often, um, you know, um, um, demands sacrifice. But but when you're willing to do that and you're willing to grow, you end up with with a tremendous prize that, that not only enriches yourself but enriches the world. Yeah. Sounds like Aliyah. <laughs> you just it does. It's, it's it's really the story of how to live a meaningful life, and that's why we're drawn to it. And it's again, it's the same story over and over, and we're drawn to that story because it speaks to the deepest yearnings in human nature. And I think the best fantasy stories. I think give us a healthy and positive way to um, identify with Adam. And just my own personal take is like when you talked about Harry Potter being dark and you like this story because it's less dark, I'm a little concerned that the, that the, the modern take on myth is very dystopian, right? Like think about the Hunger Games, it, right? There's a, there's a very, and I worry about what that's doing to our children, right? Even Harry Potter, like really you had to kill everybody you know, like the first book, the first book was not necessarily dark. It's okay to come from humble beginnings. It's okay to live in a cupboard under the stairs. As long as you know that you're going to end up in like happy Hogwarts and like, you know, everything's going to be good. But once you destroy all joy, right? Now, again, I'm not completely knocking Harry Potter. I think it does a tremendous service. But I think like when you create such dystopia, I think that, that like you're kind of killing in a child a sense of, of, of hope and, a, and like a striving for a utopia. And I think that that striving for utopia, even if it's like not ever achievable, is something really important to like, to, to, to kind of enshrine in our children. And so like, I, I, I'm glad that you're saying that there's this book that, that has that, right? Like it, it creates a safe bubble for, the, for our kids to go into, to kind of live I, out I didn't mention story. the ending, but okay. I okay, I'm just saying. saying, if you're saying it's like a happy book, right? It is it's a happy book. dark, no. then the, I, I think we don't have enough of those. In our culture, I think we're, we're, and I don't think it's healthy to take beauty and wonder and and happy endings away from our kids. Johnny, you know, uh, we said we may mention uh, another book, a book that uh, was recommended by Olivia Friedman to me a couple of months ago. is called In Awe by John O'Leary, uh, and I ordered it and I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. It's titled "Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy." 
and what uh, John O'Leary, who himself is a very, very uh, special individual, tries to teach us in this book is how we seem to lose sight of the innocent, uh, kind of marveled young person that's within us as we grow up. We grow to be cynical, and what we kind of need to do is reconnect with our, not necessarily younger self, but with our self that was prepared to discover things, with our self that was prepared to be amazed by things, in awe of things. And, and I believe he's very much uh, on point there. And so I read this, and, and kind of it stirred up all these uh, important questions as to whether we approach life too cynically um, and on a, from a specific and religious perspective. You know, the Torah tells us, Tamim and sometimes it means you need to be Tamim. You know, don't bring the cynicism to faith. Bring a certain innocence, a certain childlike wonder. You know, a word, a word that people like Heschel used often is wonder and awe and we use these words too rarely. So when you describe a book such as this, which take people on a journey, and it sensitizes people to the steps on that journey, the challenges they face, I feel that we read those books and we need to read those books because it reminds us of how extraordinary the journey called life is. Um, we often kind of just plod through things and we wake up every day and, and we see magnificent things and sometimes we see less magnificent things but still there's, there's marvel, there's inspiration even in uh, the way that people respond to tragedy. And so, though I don't read so much uh, fiction, certainly the idea that we should foster and sharpen and sensitize ourselves to look at a world through those young eyes of discovery and an inspiration is something that deeply speaks to me and I think we need more and, and going back to the notion of Midrashim you know there is with something which we've unfortunately done especially in the modern Orthodox world there are people who often hark on and bark on I would say about how uh, in, because certain um, schools of thought have pushed Midrash and shall we say uh, more non-rational texts that modern orthodoxy should do a disservice to that. Um, I'm not of that belief. I think there is wisdom in these texts. The fact that we haven't taught people how to discover that is our mistake. In fact, I remember uh, some years ago, I was lucky enough to have a long one-to-one -one, uh, learning session with Menachem Liebtag, and somehow we, we touched on this point. And he said, do you think I don't believe we should learn Midrashim? I think as kids we should. Children need to have that sort of discovery, and then they need to figure out what these texts mean. But uh, I, if we remove these wonderful, rich, mythical traditions uh, embedded within our religious literature and found on uh, the wider bookshelves that we have in our homes, I think we do do a terrible thing to our kids because we don't let them think in a way which helps us have the courage, like some of these uh, protagonists have, to face the challenges that will come before us. Wow. Thanks. That was really, I'm, I'm glad I brought it up. I was very reluctant to bring up a children, you know, children's book, but I'm really, I'm really glad that I did. All right. We're now going to turn to our final segment, our Hamlatzot. So I'll first turn to Johnny. Johnny, what's your Hamlatzah for this week? Okay. Well, I, I recently, I, I wrote a post about, on Facebook about something a few hours ago, and we realized it would be a useful Hamlatzah. There's a series on Khan called Sheila Truva. 
where two people come together for a half an hour conversation. One is a Choser Bitshuva, somebody who was born to a less religious family and became more religious. One is a Choser Shela, somebody who's born to a more religious family and became less religious. These people don't know one another, but they often have some kind of connection, say they're, they're authors or they're artists, and they talk. And uh, I've listened to a couple of those conversations. They're all available on YouTube. Um, and I found them to be remarkable. Just listening to different people on their journeys uh, without trying to attack, defend, just speaking who they are. And the most recent one, which particularly moved me, um, involved two women, uh, two artists. One is called Yael Serlin, and uh, she grew up in an irreligious kibbutz and became more religious over time. One was called Tamar Zeitlin, who grew up in the Torah and became re- less religious over time. And these two women met, um, actually in Bet Bialik, and discussed being artists and discussed their life journey. And what was interesting was the Yael, who grew in her religious um, life, seemed to meet more open-minded people, whereas Tamar seemed to have very much a... a a difficult and to her to use her language suffocated uh, younger existence or not quite younger but in her teens and twenties and, and so you could hear her or see her respond to to encounters she never had as a religious woman like I wish I had teachers who gave me who empowered me to be who I am the way you described your teachers did that to you and so there was a very very interesting meeting of minds a meeting of hearts and it just it's a nice raw um, image and, and, and conversation. And so if a Hebrew is good enough, it's certainly worthwhile uh, trying to have a listen. You can find it on my Facebook. Say that again. What's it episodes. called again? And where do you find it's it? It's called Sheila Teshuvah. There are, again, there's a number of episodes of, of men and women, different people, different backgrounds. Um, if so if you search that on YouTube, if you search that on, on Google, you'll find it, Sheila Teshuvah. If you go on YouTube, type that, you, uh, yeah, you should be able to find those episodes. Uh, they're clearly labeled. Thank you, Molly. Um, well, so I don't know. I, 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 I um, you know. We made a rule. So, well, the reason we're bringing back the Hamlatzot, Johnny, is because that was one of the feedbacks yeah. from our from our form. If you still haven't filled out our form, we'll, uh, you, we would love your feedback. So one of the feedbacks was keep the Hamlatzot coming. That's why we're doing it. But it's not obligatory. If you don't have one, you'd no, like so to I share. Just, I mean, I, I, the only reason I'm hesitating is because I feel like it's something everybody knows already. But I'll say it anyway, which is uh, follow Siva and Rav Meir on Facebook because um, she is, I, I mean, so people know who she is. She's a journalist, Israeli journalist. She used to be, um, speaking of Chiloni Haredi, right? She used to be um, secular, non-religious. She's now, I, uh, I, I don't know if she defines herself as Haredi, but she's yeshivish Haredi. Um, but she, she's become like she's exploded in popularity um, and the reason I'm giving a Hamlatsa for her posts she also has a WhatsApp group where you can get you can get her posts there and in I mean, English I think too you can get them in English too I think you get them in English I think you lose something in the translation so if you could read it in the Hebrew I suggest it but if not you can get them in English um, why am I suggesting her because I think that she talks about issues of the day and she has a very rare ability to distill the messages um, into like um, talk about essentialism. The, their essential messages, and she 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 does two mm. things. One is she really gets it right, right? With like when I reflect on, wow, you know, what what really do I think are the really important messages to take out of I don't know, let's the latest elections or or 
by the way, maybe we should mention the tragedy in, in Miami, right? Which, which I think we should t uh, kind of mention. It had been on my mind. Yeah. I've been checking the news literally hourly. It's, it's yeah. so painful. You know, and my heart with everybody there. I, you know, I have no obvious roots there, but it's, it's really right. struck the only, uh, Yeah, and I think uh, the reason I'm saying I think it's important to mention is because as a religious Zionist podcast, we often talk about the importance of identification with Israel. And I think that as... Israelis, I think we should identify with tragedies and arts as well. Um, my point is that, so for whatever the, whatever the topic is, she really distills the wisdom down very, very well, and it's always Ba'ayin Tova. She's always talking from a positive perspective, um, and she's always looking for, she, she's not a uh, cynical, negative person. She's not naive and innocent and dumb, you know, or you know, whatever the word would be there, but she, she, she's able to be intelligent um, and, again, like, essentialist, and, and at the same time, really look for, for positivity and um, generosity of spirit. So I recommend her. Okay. I'm going to, thank you. I'm going to share my Hamlatzah connected to the word of the day, Hasketim. I'm going to share with you two podcasts that I listen to now regularly. One is relatively new. One is a little bit older. There aren't that many. As I said, Israel is, is, has now discovered podcasts about 10 years into the podcast craze. So everyone is starting to put out podcasts. The first one I want to mention is one called Echad Bayom. Echad Bayom is one story a day from En Shtemesrei, which is one of the major news outlets. And it really is, it's basically modeled after the New York Times Daily, pretty much, exactly. It's one story a day and really a deep dive into one story a day. Sometimes it's world news, but very often it's Israeli news and things going on in Israel that you weren't aware of. And he basically generally interviews a reporter in a specific area, though. Very highly recommended. I find it fascinating. I don't listen to every episode, but it's really, um, you learn. You learn a lot as it, because it, it really digs down into the news in a way that, that you wouldn't otherwise be aware of. That's one. And the other one, the one I really wanted to recommend is called Sur Akovi. Sur Akovi, our Matan Sur, and I don't remember what the first guy's, the guy's first name is, uh, Yaakovi from Underdos. And uh, it's a, it's a I went comedy. I them last week. What? Yeah. I saw them years ago. I went to see them last week. So they have a podcast called Surva Yaakovi. Yeah. Highly two recommended. Three of them or four? No, two of them. It's only two of them. There's four of them. Yeah. And they do skits. They do it like in the last Did one I was listening to. Nadab, yeah. they, they create Nadab, uh, Nadab, Nadab Sur and something Yaakovi, whatever. And, mm -hmm. and uh, like for, just they did a skit imagining a podcast of divorced women where, one of, where the, the guy uh, interviewed Melinda Gates. It's, just like, it's like crazy things. They're just really, really funny. But normally, like I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts on like times two. You know, they listen it on, on speed. Molly, I've heard that you might do that once in a while. Mm -hmm. This one you have to listen to on like half time because they talk really, really, really fast. So like, you know, so if, if your Hebrew is excellent, you can listen to it regularly. But otherwise, it's just if you want to get into a little bit of Israeli Fermi culture and laugh a little bit, Surya Yaakobi, you just look for Surya Yaakobi on whatever podcast you want, find your hasket, and, uh, and enjoy it. Those are, that's a way of really, you know, a global way of really getting, getting uh, much better exposure into the world of Israel and Israeli culture. Highly recommended. I will stop here. Uh, wow, this came out, I felt much better than I, I was wondering how it was going to come out. It was really a fascinating discussion, so I want to thank Rab Johnny. I want to thank Rab Mali Bramsky. I want to thank our listeners for their feedback. We love your feedback. If we had an intern, we would include links to all of the things we mentioned in our show notes, but we don't have an intern, therefore we don't have a website, so we won't include links. Sorry, what can I do? Maybe John will include them. Uh, I'm if, if you have a specific request, you know, let us know and we'll gladly... Uh, share, right, you want to share which book did you mention or what yeah. have you, we're happy to do it. More than happy to. Right. Uh, my name is Ruben Spolter. 
Finally, I want to thank my son, Petach Espolter, who wrote our music. Have a great week, everybody. Just as a note, we're not taking, we're going to take a short break, a few weeks break for the three weeks for the summer. We'll be back after Tisha B'Av with new and exciting episodes. Have a great week, everybody.